who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break, this podcast, the fan podcast looking at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back 10 years and looking at the 2010 thriller The Killing Machine, also known as Icarus. In this hyper-violent tale, Dolph pulls double duty for the fifth time in his career as both the star and director. This time, Dolph plays Edward Gen, a businessman and father by day, and Soviet-trained assassin by night, working under the codename Icarus. Yet when his double lives begin to cross paths, Edward must race to discover who's made him the next target, before his family gets caught in the crossfire. Who are you? Your executioner. When it comes to killing. 500 meters short, Miami. I just got back. Then don't unpack your bags. Make it clean. Make it quick. And never miss your target. Today's your lucky day. Now, this one man death squad. Job is bogus. That's impossible. Who issued the order? He's about to go from Hitman. Someone has a contract out of me. To Haunted. And every day. They try to kill my family. Is a fight. To stay alive. Get out of the apartment! Dolph Lundgren is the killing machine. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to chat this one are two guests to the show, show regular Chris Prentice, and making his inaugural appearance on the show is major cinephile Mike Flynn. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, how you guys doing? I am doing okay. Mike, this is uh, you're you're kind of you're kind of stepping into uh, into waters here that are that are crowded by by Dolph Lundgren fans, and so th- this is this is going to be interesting because this particular film is a film that uh, Chris and I have uh, seen a couple times prior, but this was yeah. your first this is your first uh, viewing experience, and I guess before we get rolling, I, I have to ask because I know you I know that you've seen a few films uh, uh, of Dolph Lundgren's, but I guess a lot of the films that he did that kind of went under the radar that were direct to video, you know, case case in point, this particular film you had never seen. So I guess 
I'll just ask you right now, right off the bat, I guess, A, what do you think of Mr. Lundgren? And B, for this film being your first time seeing it, did it put him in a new light for you at all? What do you think? Oh, I've been a huge Lundgren fan forever. Uh, I for, I don't know what the first thing I saw him is in, but it was like supporting roles in Rocky Four and Johnny Mnemonic at first, but where I really got into him was um, I Come in Peace. That was the first big one I think I remember seeing about 13, 14 years back. Um, in addition, I'm a really big fan of Showdown Little Tokyo. Universal Soldier is probably his best performance. The uh, Butcher scene in particular. Um, I like his Punisher a lot, but I, I've i been I like on and off about some of his more recent stuff that he's done in the 21st century. Um, Chris actually recommended uh, The Mechanic to me, and I watched it one night and was very entertained. Um, I have also seen Skin Trade, which roped me in because that cast was way too nerdy for me to not resist. So I dropped, I dropped like five bucks on that on placed on my PS3 a few years ago. Um, so I've seen that, and I remember Chris mentioning mentioning Icarus a lot back in the day on the Chud boards, and I just never got around to it. It was one of those things that I guess it came out the wrong way and they gave it that awful killing machine title, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And then I watched it and Oh my God, this is not only like a proto John wick, but it's also a more action packed version. Say actually, you know what? I should start this over. If this was a John Woo movie with Chow Yun fat, everybody would talk about it. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing, it's exactly what, it's a lot like John Wick in the sense that it's this privatized organization of hitmen that are all over the world. And this one happens to be in Vancouver. And the third thing is, I know Eastern Promises is one of the big comparison points for this one. Uh, I see that, but it's kind of stuck in the middle between that and history of violence in terms of Cronenberg prestige with uh, Viggo Mortensen because of the past life and protecting the family and, but there's a lot more action in this one so i was very entertained by it well this film is basically i mean if you wanted to uh introduce this film to someone who had never seen this film before obviously i think the best way that you could describe it is the film is uh leon meets true lies meets a history of violence i mean I, in my opinion i think those are the three uh the big big inspirations where it's pulling uh where it's pulling inspiration from. And you also said something else that I think is really telling Mike that I want to go back to. You mentioned the yeah. mechanic as being an amazing, uh, an amazing film that, that Dolph did. I agree with you there. And then you also mentioned skin trade, which uh, again is another one I'd agree with you on. Chris and I have had this discussion multiple times. I think the, the big reason why films like the mechanic and like skin trade and like this film that we're talking about today, Icarus, the reason why, they are so good and why they do stand up so much taller above, above some of the other films that he did is because Dolph had a hand behind the scenes of those films in terms of whether it be writing, whether it be directing, whether it be producing. And so, yeah, the mechanic, that was one that he wrote the story for that he also directed. Yep. Icarus, same thing. He had the story behind it. He directed it. And then Skin Trade, that was uh, Skin Trade was like his real pet project, if you will. I mean, he, he didn't direct yeah. that one, but he was, 
he was fully invested in that one. And I, I've gone back to this before multiple times, and I'll keep going back to it until <laughs> until the day I die. I think Lundgren turns in his best work, and he is so much more invested when he is working behind the scenes, behind the camera, and he is driving the show. Chris, you and I have had this discussion, and I think with with this particular film that uh, we're talking about today, I think that's very evident. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the ones that he has, like you said, much more involvement, whether it's producing or, in this case, directing, you know, he, he's not just doing a piece of junk. I mean, and let's be honest, he's made a lot of piece of junk movies, especially in recent years, and there's plenty of examples of him just showing up for a week, showing up for two weeks, and just collecting his check, and... You know, not that he's necessarily bad in some of those movies, but they're just bad movies. But, you know, something like Icarus and something like The Mechanic and something like Command Performance, I mean, he, you know, he's obviously very involved and he's he he wants it to be good. He knows who his audience is and he's just trying to make a movie that his audience will enjoy. And and I think that Icarus is a, is a really good example of it. Um, it's. You know the the story is is relatively straightforward, and you know it, it's just action scene after action scene after action scene. And even though it's you know not working with a crazy high budget, I think that he gets uh, he's able to get as much out of it as as I think anybody could have with this uh, with this kind of a budget and this kind of a shooting schedule. Well, you know what's you know what's really kind of wild about this uh, about this film, and really about Mr. Lundgren's career is how. His career, if you look at it, really parallels the other guys, because around the same time of this film, Jean-Claude Van Damme played a cold contract killer in the direct-to-video film uh, Assassination Games, which is another pretty dumb title. But yeah, that, that was that was <laughs> Jean-Claude's turn as uh, being a, uh, a contract killer, who's also the, uh, the, the protagonist of the film. And then about a year or so later... Sylvester Stallone played a hitman in the film Bullet to the Head. And again, th these are things that you really don't notice when the films come out. But but man, it's it's, it's really kind of wild when you look at it around how around these years in these periods, all of these action guys, you know, are doing films that are all similar to one another in terms of themes and styles and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I totally see that. You mentioned Bullet to the Head, which I saw. I was probably one of like eight people that saw it in the theater and <laughs> I, well, nine, nine, if, actually 10, if you want to count me and my wife. So 10 people, yeah, 11, was, make, make it 11. <laughs> I was, I was including you guys in that figure. of eight, oh, okay. actually. All right. Damn. Um, I just, I just implied, but the thing I love about it is it's Walter Hill directing Stallone and I can't resist that. Oh yeah. It's just too fun. The and Streets of Fire is my favorite Walter Hill movie. So the fact that it ends with an axe fight similar to the sledgehammer fight at the end of Streets of Fire is really awesome. Now, going back to what we're talking about with Icarus, um, I can definitely see where Bullet to the Head comes in. Um, but I think Lundgren wasn't trying to compete on this movie. This does seem like a passion project, but it does feel reactionary, albeit to different things. Um, as I said, it's very much rooted in Cronenberg's mid-2000s prestige run. The other thing I noticed, and this is at the beginning, the beginning reminds me a lot of Casino Royale. 
Yeah, the flashback sequence where he first gets his double O agent status. I, I really See, think Lundgren was thinking about that while writing this. He probably had the draft going a couple of years, and he opened up his laptop as soon as he saw Casino Royale and wrote it right in. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, there's definitely well, some similarities there. Well, before we really, before we really uh, t- take a look at some of the individual scenes, I think we need to uh, kind of look at the the pre production of this film and kind of what went down because I feel like that right there is a pretty uh, a fascinating genesis, if you will. So this was a script that was apparently very near and dear to uh, to Mr. Lundgren. I mean, he wrote the script and he immediately became attached as both the star and the director. Um, unfortunately, the film that ultimately got made that we see is basically a stripped down version of what Dolph had intended, because I guess as as the story goes, basically what Dolph wanted was to be a uh, essentially a three character piece where Dolph played a cold calculating assassin and then it also followed the cop who was on his case. Yet when the producers came on board, um, one of which was Cinetel, they demanded rewrites to the script, and it became more about Dolph leading a double life. So that's kind of where I, I saw the, the true lies parallels. And so that's kind of what happened. What's really interesting, though, about this is, and you know, I've, I've echoed this on previous episodes as well, this seems to be a recurrent theme throughout the career of Dolph, where he signs on for a film with certain promises and visions of what the final project product is going to look like. Then along the way, you know, it gets changed, the budget dwindles, and he's saddled with what I like to call the, the skeletal remains of, you know, of what was intended. However, I will say it now, because this is Dolph directing, he had seen films pretty much... Uh, dissipate, you know, as he signed on for them. And, you know, we, we saw the results of what those are. I think because this is Dolph directing, he saw that happen before numerous times. So he wasn't going to let his pet project follow similar suits. And so I will say right now, Chris, I don't know if you would agree with this. Had this been directed by anyone else and Dolph was just the, just the gun for hire, you know, starring in the film, this, we would have probably gotten another diamond dogs or last warrior on our hands. So thankfully, the fact that Dolph is directing, I think that's one of the big reasons why this film looks as good as it does. I yeah, think- no, I, 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 I would agree with that completely. You know, when, uh, again, like we were saying, when he's the one who's putting his name on it and it's he's got the director's credit, you know, he is going to get as much out of it as possible. I mean, you know, even... Even if you look at one of his movies that maybe isn't so great, like Missionary Man, I mean, that's one that uh, it isn't really loaded up with action, but you can tell that, that he's putting some heart into it and he's not just, you know, he's not just making a piece of junk and, and he's, he's got way more invested in it. And it's the same thing here. Um, it's, I'm sure there were probably a lot of changes made either before they started filming and then I, as far as I know, the, the producers basically took the movie away from him um, after it was done. So I know he's kind of had some uh, some hard issues regarding that. But yeah, like like you said, if this was just one of his movies that he had signed on to to just be the lead, just act in it, and you had some other guy directing it, you know, this this would have been uh, I think way less interesting, uh, and probably would have the action would not have been nearly as good. Um, cause I mean, considering it's, it's a low budget film, I mean, I think he's, he really milks it for as much action as possible. 
And, and that's, that's mainly why the movie delivers. I mean, he's good in it. It's a, a, a perfectly fine performance, but, uh, you know, he's, he's making this for action fans and it's, it delivers on that level of being just a good kind of gangster shoot 'em up action film. It, it succeeds there perfectly. Mike, I want to go back to what you were saying about the changing visions of some of Dolph's projects in the past. If memory serves, Men of War was a John Sayles screenplay. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, so basically, what yeah, what happened on that one was, you know, John Sayles you know, wrote it originally, and I think it was you know maybe about ten years or so before it was actually filmed, and you know basically from what I've always read is that a lot of that character that Dolph played is is very true to that script and the the basic storyline is pretty similar but that you know of course when these things especially when when you get these smaller companies that actually want to make the movie they want to pump it up with more action cuz you know that's what sells right. especially in in the on the rental market and overseas so yeah uh, and they brought in a couple other writers um later on who uh, who kind of threw in much more action? I think that's the main reason why the the third act of that movie is so action packed was because yeah. the, the you know the people who were funding it basically said, look, this is a Dolph Lundgren movie. People people are, are expecting bodies to be flying around everywhere. Let's right. even though it's a relatively a relatively talky movie for about the first hour, you know, they know that uh, eventually people are, are going to want to see uh, explosions and, you know, rocket launchers galore. And, yeah. and so that's what, that's what they did with it, which, and, and I think it all, it works just fine. I mean, I, I love that movie. That's, that's a I, fantastic one. I got to revisit it. All I remember is that the bad guy dies in the most awesome way possible, but I want to oh, yeah. uh, oh. just point out with John sales that, it sounds kind of like the same situation that Joe Esterhaas had with Nowhere to Run, which started out as a straight drama, no action. Um, they sold it to Paramount after Witness was a hit. And then it went into Turnaround, and Sony got it, and Columbia added all the action and sex, and people easily associated all that shit with um, Joe Esterhaas. And he was like, no. I didn't do that. This movie sucks, but huh. because he was the writer of basic instinct and this is around the same time sliver came out, they just assumed it was another sleazy trash bag of a film, which I mean, nowhere to run is kind of clunky because it does have that Shane street going, but then hmm. it's also got softcore porn. That's mainstream and went theatrical about, but going back to Icarus and, Dolph Lundgren as director, I think he probably took it on when they cut the budget because he knew that he would be the best person to do this. And you can clearly see the low budget because it does look a little cheap. And there's a lot of times where it looks like maybe they're filming in the producer's house to save cost. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So and he's not. And I wouldn't say he's like, you know, Clint Eastwood or something like that, where he just films something in less than a month and it's out a week later. I think this is closer to someone like Stallone. And he probably picked up from Stallone, hey, you can be the star and you can have a cooperative relationship with the director, much as, well, that's probably not what happened in the case with Cosmatos and his stuff with Stallone. but. um 
does feel like Dolph directs as if he's learned this craft over the years, and he goes all in with it. I really give him credit. Oh, yeah. The, the action's really well made, but I watched this, and I'm like, wow, if this had more of a budget, and this would get into theaters, and I would love if this was a theatrical thing, but, and... I will say that I like these sorts of action movies a lot more than any kind of genre, mainstream genre thing that any of the big streaming services will come out with. Um, well, that, and that's old, one of the big reasons. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, that's one of the big reasons, Mike, why I wanted you on for this one, because I knew that this one would be up your alley. Um, I know that this was one that you had not seen before, but I knew that it yes. would be up your alley. I knew that it would that it would please you, especially as being a fan of Dolph and with this being uh, one of the films that, you know, that, that you had not seen. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, okay, if you look at Dolph's career, okay, right. prior to this, for this, to this particular film, yeah, he had sure. signed on for a number of films. I mean, if you go through his, his entire filmography, there's just a bunch of films that he signed on for. And right before, like at the day he was showing up on set, getting ready to start filming he finds out oh the budget is cut and as a result the budget yeah. is cut they're changing the story here they're doing this there and so here he is trying to make do and make the best with with what he possibly had but yeah like you said the fact that okay he decided okay you know what if this is going to be a low budget and you know they changed my script and they you know changed so much about it at least i'm still the director because because i'm the director i can at least see my vision the best possible way I can, you know, I can see it through to the end in the best possible way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's true. You know, what, um, I want to I add a thing about Cinetel Films. I actually yeah. got very excited when their logo showed up. Um, they have made a bunch of awesome, craptacular action films, mostly in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, they had the Relentless franchise, which is relentlessly boring on the most part. <laughs> They also did one of my favorite bad action movies, Cold Steel, which is the sole action hero effort of Midnight Express's Brad Davis, featuring Jonathan Banks as the villain with a tracheotomy and a grenade launcher that fires grenades that bounce off the grill of the car like a Nerf ball. <laughs> um, it's, it's an unbelievable film. Anyone who's listening to this, if you've never seen Cold Steel, watch it. It's kind of a Christmas movie, too. The other one I just discovered, uh, this was a William Lustig film called Hit List that came out of nowhere. I, I was like, how have I never heard of this movie? And it's a commando ripoff where it's kind of like commando meets an innocent man because they go in the wrong house, which is Jan Michael Vincent's house, and he's liquored the hell up. They take his son and he goes after Lance Henriksen, who plays the Bennett of the movie. And there's also Charles Napier as a vigilante FBI agent who has a Leo Getz type sidekick played by Leo Rossi. And he says something to the degree of, I'm like Nancy Reagan. I just say no. And that's how he pleads the Fifth Amendment. It's crazy. It's got like <laughs> reckless stunts. So when I saw that logo, I kind of thought, huh. This is an old mark of quality showing up on the screen. I, I, I like the direction this is going. Well, and see, what I picked up on immediately from the first frame of this movie is that this was filmed in Canada. I mean, this is oh, yeah. <laughs> this is very much yeah. a Canadian production. And what's what's interesting is most of these 
uh, independent Canadian productions all have, in my opinion, the same look and the same aesthetic. I mean, they almost feel like made-for-TV movies in a way. Also, the other interesting thing, other than Dolph with these Canadian productions, I never recognize any of the other actors. I mean, the, the, I've oh, never seen yeah. any of the other yeah. actors before. So th that's one thing that I picked up on. But what's interesting about it is, okay, yeah, it is a Canadian film, but it does not try to pass itself off as New York like so many of these films do. I mean, they even make reference to the fact that they are in Vancouver. So I appreciate yeah, that. And about that's, it. that's a res one of the most respectable elements of it for me is that they don't hide from the fact that it's set in Vancouver. And I can't think of a lot of Canadian stuff outside the aforementioned Cronenberg, who clearly set his early stuff up to Videodrome in Canada but he always filmed in Canada. So for them to do something that's set there is, is really good on them because you don't really want to pass off a generic city as something else. Um, back in the eighties, they would always make Toronto play New York. Um, or you would have the rare exception of something that actually did have American actors or actors that Americans knew a uh, movie I just rewatched, The Silent Partner with Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer, that's set in Toronto very clearly. And there's no looking back. They don't tell you, oh, they're, they're in New York City. They're in Toronto. So watching Icarus a few days after that, it was kind of like, oh, wow, this one does it too. But they're doing Vancouver, not Toronto. It's They're like the New York LA of Canada. Well, I remember watching Angel Eyes with Jennifer Lopez back in 2001, and that one, we're supposed to believe that Jennifer Lopez is a New York cop, yet there are so many exterior shots in the film that show downtown Vancouver. And it's like, this isn't New York. Like, what is this here? Right. The other one that I always crack up at is the third Hellraiser movie, which is quote-unquote set in New York City, but it was filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina. And when they go, get out for the street battle in the climax, this alleged Manhattan has suddenly become Main Street in some random-ass town in Iowa. It's yeah. really amazing. I, I always associate Canada with uh, with all the, the syndicated action shows from the 90s. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was the boom oh. time. Like, you know, Michael Dudikoff's Cobra, uh, <laughs> oh you know, all the, the tech war, all that, <laughs> that era. I mean, that's when things were just booming for Canada. They had so much stuff being filmed there. Did they I get think the... Did they get the syndicated Midnight Run franchise up there? I don't know if that was because because I think from what I remember, the, the Midnight Runs, it was never actually like a full series. That was right. part of that. It was part of that action pack where it kind of started out where it was like a different movie every week. They would have right. Vanishing Sun. They had uh, Smokey and the Bandit that was just called yep. Bandit. And they had, you know, they had the tech war and then some of those eventually spun off into an actual series. Like that's how Hercules started. Um, Hercules right. was that. And then it spun off into a series. That's and right. so I don't think I, yeah, I don't think Midnight Run went to a full series. 
Um, but yeah, so I, I just always associate like time tracks. I'm sure that must have been a Canadian <laughs> yeah. show. Had to have been. Um, yeah. So I mean, that must have been good times for the the, the people working in film and television uh, during the 90s because everything. I know a lot of Stephen J. Cannell's shows were were up there. And uh, that, that's what I always think of when, you know, they're trying to pass off Canada as America is, is all those shows. Yeah, you get you get that one big American star to front it and the international markets will sign over millions of dollars for you. But that's right. Those millions of dollars, they might not go through. That's right. The low yep. might default. You might lose that two point five million of your uh, six million dollar budget. Got to cut that, cut well, out that shootout. And like I said earlier, I mean, you know, all of these shows that all of these made for TV movies and shows that we just referenced. Yes, we, we do. We may remember the actual shows, but kind of like what I said earlier, I don't think we can remember too many of the actual actors in these films. Um, <laughs> but, no, no, it's no, it's Dolph. So it's, it, it's Dolph. It's Bo Svensson and a whole yep. lot of uh, who the hell knows. About Bo Svensson, who I was very excited to see because I, being a younger generation, a.k.a. pretty much anybody who didn't know who Bo Svensson was. Actually, no, make that anyone who didn't know the 70s. You knew him from Tarantino's movies. So when I saw his name come on screen, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's 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 awesome. I mean, he's a he's been around a long time. I, I know we were talking about this one the other day, Sean, is a North Dallas 40. He's got a, oh, yeah. a pretty, he's got a pretty good part as a, one of the defensive guys. I mean, he's a nut in that movie, and he's he's really good in it. It's him and John Matuzak are kind of the, the main defensive players, which you know, I think that's one of the most underrated sports movies ever. It's like such a such a great football movie and he's great in it and he i mean he's just he's popped up in all, all kinds of stuff there's yeah. a great uh there's a great two one of the early two-part episodes of uh, magnum pi and svensson is the the heavy in that one he's kind of a, a an old foe of magnum from back when he was in vietnam and uh, it's a great two-parter and he's is he's excellent wait, in it is that kind of like the um the Bob Balaban episodes of Miami Vice with G. Gordon Liddy? No, it's actually much closer. In fact, I think Miami Vice kind of did a ripoff uh, of it slightly oh. of the, okay. the Hackman, the, the Hackman episode where uh, Crockett uh, shoots Hackman at the very end, just outright kills right. him. They basically oh. do the same thing in uh, the Magnum P.I. Uh, it's 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 basically the same type of ending right there. And oh, I yeah. should comment it's... that um I should comment that North Dallas 40 I really like that one. I got to revisit it, but you know Ted Kotcheff is one of those workmen that doesn't get discussed a lot. No, um, no. I, I mean I mean you have Weekend at Bernie's at the end of the 80s, but all within a few years North Dallas 40 First Blood Uncommon Valor. That's oh, yeah. a pretty good that's, track record. That's an awesome trio, and, no doubt yeah. about it. Mike, you're leaving out the Dolph Lundgren connection. He also did Hidden <laughs> Assassin with Dolph Lundgren. Oh, yeah. Back in 1990. I've seen that. So you get to see Dolph with uh, John Ashton. Oh, yeah. great oh. John Ashton. Is this the uh, Taggart spinoff that everybody demanded be done after <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop 3? No, I think this is this is the the movie that uh, he, where he basically said, "Okay, that that's enough. I'm just going to retire until I do Gone Baby Gone." And this is, is going to yeah, do it for me. 
Now, hidden assassin, hidden assassin marked uh, Dolph trying to do a respectable, more of a dramatic thriller piece in the experimental phase of his career, whereas John Ashton was merely cashing a paycheck, I think is is what sums up that one. But, you know, I, I think, Chris, going back to this particular film, if and, and, you know, discussing Canadian productions and whatnot, I think we can agree that this film is so much better than Hidden Agenda, which Delph did back in 2002, and that one was a 100% Canadian production, and I would put that one at the bottom of the barrel. Would you Would you agree with that, Chris? Oh, totally. I mean, it's like even... Even after I listened to the episode you did on Hidden Agenda, I really couldn't remember anything about it. It's such a disposable movie, and yeah, Icarus is is leaps and bounds better. I mean, it's it's, it's no contest. I mean, you know, Hidden Agenda may as well just be an uh, you know some episode of a of one of those uh, a not so good syndicated series. It's just there's just so bland. There's just nothing to it. Whereas this one has personality Icarus is you know there's there's definitely you know there's a point of view in this movie and 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 Dolph you know he knows what kind of movie he's making and he goes at it to the hilt I mean he delivers you know right from the opening I mean that I think it's a really cool sequence when he's uh taking out the the gangsters who are torturing the 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 Russian uh at the at the very beginning I mean that's that's a really cool sequence I mean that just that that makeup work on the guy's cheek, I think, is is tremendous. I mean, you don't really see that sort of detail in a lot of these movies, but I mean, that guy's cheek just hanging off his face was uh is is yeah. very oh. gnarly, and it's oh, such yeah. a great way to open the film. That feels like something out of a. It reminded me of Itchy the Killer, actually. Yeah. Well, and something else actually that you know when when this film first came out, Chris. I remember when the trailer first hit for this film, you and I were corresponding and, and texting back and forth about it. And I remember you pointing it out then back in 2009 when the trailer first hit. And it's really evident nowadays as well. I think this particular film marks the first time in Dolph's career, at least, where the digital style of filmmaking was widely apparent. I mean, this particular yes. film, if you want to compare this to some of the other films that uh, that not only Dolph starred in, but the ones that Dolph directed, the digital style of filmmaking with this film, man, it's very obvious. And I have to admit, that's, I mean, there, there's just a few minor quibbles that I have with this film that I'll be getting into. But I got to be honest, that's one of them. I think the digital uh, filmmaking style and look of this film, it just looks cheap. I've never liked it. I didn't like it then. I still don't like it to this day. And I get, look, I, I get that it's cheap. I get that it's, you know, more efficient. It's more cost effective. So it's not going away. Having said that, though, it, it doesn't do the film any favors and really, in my opinion, looking like a like a movie. No, it's definitely that that's the truth. I mean, this was kind of the first one of his movies that really had that look. I mean, if you look at just the ones he did, just prior to it, like a uh, direct contact command performance, you know, you can say what you want about the actual content, but they still have that movie look to them. You know, they, they, you, you definitely won't confuse those with TV shows. Whereas this, yeah, that, that digital look is extremely evident, but that's just, that's just where everything was headed. I mean, around 2009, 2010, 
that's just where these movies were going to. And, you know, they're really, there, there was really nothing that, that was going to stop it. And it's unfortunately that's, that's kind of where we're still at today is a lot of these movies still have that kind of look to them. And it's, uh, it's just the way it is. That's why I'm so happy that for the most part, even though it does have that digital look when it comes to like, you know, the, the muzzle flashes on the guns and the, the practical effects, like we were talking about the cheek and the blood is that it's still, everything looks fairly practical. There isn't a lot of bad, you know, CGI. There's that, there is that horrible shot of the explosion when the, his girlfriend dies. That's, you know, that they really should have fixed that somehow. But aside from that, even though it has that digital look, I, I do appreciate that for the most part, everything is done pretty practical and uh, and that's what makes this one stand out it's like you know when when you're seeing these you know badass gangsters fire their guns you know it, it, they look like guns it doesn't turn into like a video game where it looks like you know a bunch of generic muzzle flashes going off so i i, I definitely appreciate that uh that even though they had to sacrifice that that cinematic look it didn't hurt the, the movie too bad in my opinion well and i will say that I think a lot of the reason, again, going back to kind of what we said earlier, it's the fact that Dolph is at the helm that he is directing. And in the end, yes, true. Maybe this isn't the film. He's not directing and starring in the film that he had envisioned, but he is still manning the ship of this. And I think that is why it's still, you know, even though it has that kind of digital cheap quality and look and feel to it, why I think it still stands head and shoulders above much of the other stuff that he's done within the past 10 years that is also digital. I mean, the other thing that I will say with this particular film is how Dolph, at this point in his career, I mean, this is the fifth film that he had directed. And I think it's widely apparent how, again, <laughs> I didn't notice it then, but I really pick up, pick up on it now, watching these films in succession with one another, is how much he has come into his own as a director. And he has really adopted a style of his own that is really evident across all of the films that he has directed. And so if you've noticed this, I mean, cause okay, Mike, I know, I know you, you just said earlier, you saw the mechanic and um, Chris, you yeah. were on when we were discussing uh, the defender and some of the, with one of the other films that he did command performance, he does this in his films, which is interesting. Okay. Whenever he exhibits a flashback sequence, he uses shaky cam, and he applies this grainy filter. And he did the exact same thing in both the mechanic and rush uh, mechanic, Russian specialist, however you want to refer to it, and command performance. Yeah. He did the same thing in both those films. He also did it, I believe, in The Defender as well. And so you could say it's like, oh, man. I mean, there's, I guess there's, uh, there's two schools of thought. You could say, oh, man, he's, he's doing the same thing again. But then on the other hand, it's like, look, he knows what works for him. And he is doing what works for him, which I, I think is, is really kind of cool that he's applying a, uh, a certain style and a certain aesthetic. I mean, I think at this point, it's safe to say he's an auteur and he's, he's exhibiting that with these films. I, I agree with that. You know, he definitely was kind of honing his, his style and, you know, you see it kind of work its way throughout the, the five films that he's directed so far, this being the fifth one. Um, now you mentioned the shaky cam. 
you know that that doesn't really bother me when it comes to like the flashbacks, like the the scenes of him when he's much younger yeah. or his character is much younger. Yeah, it doesn't bother me there, but I do think that that is my my one main gripe with this movie is just overall there's way too much shaky cam. I mean, there's just there are shots where he's just walking to a car or he's just walking through the the house at the end and the camera's just all over the place and you know, I understand that people, you know, directors, they'll use that to effect in, in action scenes. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I know that that's just a technique. But there are so many shots where there's there's no reason for there to be shaky cam, and there is. And, and that that is honestly my biggest gripe with this movie. I, I, I like so much of it, but man, when ro- watching it again, I, I just I did not understand why there are so many shots where the camera is just all over the place. Well, I want to echo Chris, and I know we actually talked about this uh, the other day, the uh, shaky cam, because it drove me nuts as well. This was at the height of where shaky cam was the norm, and every time I saw a movie that didn't use shaky cam, which was very rare, um, I think Drive was the one that where I was like, oh, wow, I'm getting a vacation from all of this horrible nausea porn that I'm seeing on screen. Um, in regards to Icarus, I think that it looks rushed and that and the digital look looks very cheap. So it's kind of like their comorbidities together that make one big flaw. I'm willing to forgive that for the fact that it's a really well-written screenplay that has a great hook and premise. And it's structured, it's tight, it's in and out in less than an hour and a half, and you don't need anything else. Uh, but I think it it does succeed despite the shaky cam. And, of course, the excuse is that, you know, the board movies are what spurred that. And the first time Greengrass uses it in Born Supremacy, it looks rough. And it kind of drags that one down for me. And it's not until Ultimatum where he's actually using the shaky cam to make it feel real. And it's not just a stylistic thing. In Icarus, it's a stylistic thing for sure. And that's what, but here's the thing. If I think the shaky cam in this instance was Dolph having to conform and be like, again, working with a low budget. Because there is worse out there. Um, Quantum of Solace has one of the worst bits of editing or directing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I think there's like half second flashes of things. You cannot watch that movie without a second screen. So open your laptop or have your phone handy. If you ever revisit that one, when the next bond comes out. Um, And the other one that I will say, this movie is better at shaky cam because they had a budget on this movie and they blew it. And that is, everybody's favorite sequel, A Good Day to Die Hard. Mm. <laughs> well, be, before we uh, before we go down the rabbit hole of uh, discussing how much Good Day to Die Hard sucks, um, I think we... <laughs> a lot. A lot. I, uh, it sucks worse than most of the 3,000 movies I've ever seen in my life. Oh, it, it doesn't it's... even... It doesn't even deserve to be called a Die Hard film. But no. <laughs> with, no. with regard to this film... What's cool about it is how, um, Mike, you already said this earlier, the film opens kind of, uh, it opens in, what is it they call it, in media res, I guess, 
where um, yeah, it's in Medias Res. Yeah, yeah, where Eddie is cornered, and he's mm-hmm. apparently at this point in the film, he's ready to accept his death. I guess we can assume, and then through some voiceover, we find out that we are going to see, we're going to go into flashback and we're going to see how it was that Eddie got to this point that he's in when the film started. And so here's where we get a really interesting, I was going to get your take on it because, okay, we get an opening title sequence that is really interesting where we get some heavy metal rock music with uh, black and white production stills from the film of, of Dolph and some of the other characters interspersed. Oh, with I some love that. I love that it's sequence perfect. because it looks like number one, it it doesn't deserve to be an opening credit sequence. Number two looks exactly like what they've been doing with the mission impossible franchise for the last few movies. Like well, it it's feels very like similar. the closing I mean, credits. Well, it's very similar to the opening title sequence of the Punisher. I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't know if you guys picked up on that, the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Yeah. And so I was going to, I was going to get your take on it. Chris, I'll go to you first. This title sequence here. Do you think that it was Dolph's insistence or do you think it was the production's insistence that wanted to do these? Okay. They pretty much, they had these production stills of, of Dolph and all the various characters. They wanted to throw in some uh, digital blood over the titles. And then they had this, you know, rock song that I'm assuming they got from the public domain. Do you think, do you think this was Dolph's idea (laughs) or was it, um, or was it the production saying, okay, we need a kick-ass way to, to open this, I could go both ways, but Chris, I mean, what do you think? Because, like I said, do you, do you remember the opening titles of the Punisher? It's it's so yeah. similar. In- it, it, it is. There there is similarities, but the the way it's done in this movie, I think it's the production company, especially since you know yeah. I had heard that they basically took the movie, you know, from from Dolph after it was done, and you know that they they more or less edited it. Uh, their way um so yeah that it just seems a little a little tacky i mean it's common for these kind of movies to have those sort of credit sequences um yeah but it's yeah it that's not my not one of the high points of the movie um you know i think it's just one of those type of sequences that's designed to pad out the running time a little bit more than it, than yeah. it probably should be and and yeah, that's its, its sole purpose idea. and it yeah. exactly exactly that's, I that's how I, I see it I don't think but it was Mike, Dolph's idea. It. Yeah, I mean, it, I though. think it's really cool. Um, I think it's cool, but I also think that it's a little out of place with the vibe of the film. Uh, a couple of examples I want to use to cite my uh, analysis of this. The first being the Larry Cohen scripted I, the Jury with Armand Sante, which has opening credits that look like any private investigator or cop show from the eighties. And you would never think that it's this sleazy sex filled, lurid, violent noir film. And it's just wacky. Uh, the other one. Yeah. It's real out there. the, the, The sleazier. It's probably the sleaziest private detective movie ever made. Uh, wait, are you counting the art of dying with wings? Hauser? Well, see, I still haven't seen that one yet. That's, oh, uh, one my, you one have my, to see one that. Of my, one of my few PM entertainment movies that I have not seen. I've heard stories oh, about it. Oh, oh, oh you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll, you won't be looking at Wings Hauser in the most family friendly way. That's about the safest thing I can say without spoiling it. 
Anyway, I don't think um, I've ever looked at Wingshauser in a, in a family way. So no, so that's no, fine. He, no, he's frightening. Um, yes, but as back, he always is, as he always is. Uh, except he does he does get a little cuckolded by Bruce McGill in The Insider. That's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Oh yeah, no, because, he gets he gets his he gets what that smirk off your face. Right, he gets his, his ass yeah. handed to him in that one, and uh, and and of course, of course, we all remember his brief stint as uh, uh, John Goodman and Roseanne's neighbor on Roseanne. He had oh wow, about, oh yeah, it was about oh, yeah maybe about six or seven episodes. Yeah, yeah. He, what he season was, was that? I can't remember the so, yeah. season. He was he was the father to Danielle Harris from Halloween. That's fame. right. Oh and my, yes. Darian yeah, Hallenbeck. He, he was hitting on Jackie, if I remember right. He became a potential love interest to Jackie. Chris, am I right with that? I want to. Yes, yeah. I mean, that was uh, that was like uh, that was like a big thing at the time. At least if you're if you were a Wings Hauser fan, because it's like you know he was in all these <laughs> these kind of you know very obscure kind of movies, and then all of a sudden he just pops up on like the number one sitcom as the the new neighbor. And, uh, and man, I remember thinking, oh man, he's going to be on this forever. Cause it was like in the middle, <laughs> it must've been like the fourth or fifth season. I'm, I'm guessing. And, uh, and I don't know, it just, it, it, I, I don't think it lasted too long. I don't know if maybe he, uh, didn't get along with Tom Arnold behind the scenes. I have no idea, but, uh, it was, uh, it, that was his, to me, I, I, other than maybe the insider, that was, that was his biggest shot at the, at the, at the, at, at, in, in the major leagues. Well, Besides Vice Squad, Vice right, Squad even, was even Vice Squad is still just a really a, a cult movie. I mean, yeah. you know, most people have no idea about. I mean, they should. It'd be great. I mean, they anybody should, yeah. that anybody that does that to Fred Rerun Barry, I mean, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you should. Everyone should know what he does to to Rerun. But uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's it's an amazing performance by him. He's just an absolute nut. But I, I think most people, the, they would have no idea what Vice Squad is. But I wanted to just point out the out-of-placeness of the opening credit sequence, which is that it fits when you're doing a movie like Domino and everything's overstimulated, which, by the way, I'm one of, besides Quentin Tarantino, I'm maybe the only fan of that movie in the world. I should, yes, it fits when... It's like that, but in a subdued, sort of low-budget, brooding hitman drama, yeah, kind of no, this, sticks th- out. Yeah. This needed like a slow, melancholic synth score or something of that nature. Ooh, yeah. You know what I mean? It, like a, it needed like a Cliff Martinez if, type. Yeah, and if they and if they absolutely needed a title sequence to pad the runtime, then rather than showing production stills with blood splatter on the screen which like you said does look cool but if they're going to fit the tone of this film then maybe something you know going through the streets of vancouver at nighttime or maybe um oh actually i'm now that i'm thinking about this a melancholic synth score that is going around the uh, like a close-up shot kind of going around the edges of a gun or something of that nature yeah. you know what i mean i i agree with you completely but you know if you if we look at the if we look at the opening scenes of this film, okay, after the opening credits, we get to see the double life that that Dolph is leading here. And so this, I I said earlier how I have a few minor quibbles with this film. Here's my second quibble, if you will, okay? So, okay, 
Dolph's character, Eddie, he is a businessman, real estate broker. He has a hot ex-wife. He has a young daughter. Yes, he does. He also has a hot young girlfriend. And so this is, oh God, goodness. This is one of the, at least in my opinion, one of the real issues with, with me for this movie are the familial drama scenes between he and his ex-wife. Now, yeah, the gal who they're plays, not, the gal they're who not effective. His ex-wife, she's easy on the eyes. I'll give her that. Yeah. And there, there's this, what the, the, they do something really bizarre. They spend way too much time, in my opinion, on this tension between them because, okay, Dolph's new girlfriend, whose name is April, okay, she's in the picture now. So there's all this tension between Dolph and the ex-wife and the daughter, and it all borders on feeling like a soap opera or better yeah. yet, Chris, a Canadian soap opera. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a Canadian soap opera that for whatever reason has a makeup sex scene. And okay, oh goodness, Mike. Okay, that was my other. That was my other problem here. Okay, the dynamic narratively does not work either. Okay, because yeah, they, no. the plot spends so much time showing how they have this tortured relationship, but they have a kid in the mix and everything. And again, the dynamic does not come off believable at all because one minute. She's all sorts of pissed off at him because how dare he has April in his life and he puts them in danger. And then the next minute, she's jumping in bed with him. And it's it's so weird because at the beginning of the film, she's upset with him and pissed off at him because he didn't show up to the dance recital. And then he saves them. And suddenly they're now back on again. It's like, what is this here? Like, And, and I have, Chris, you and I have talked about this as well, but I have some theories as to why they even included the April character in the film, but did it distract you as much as it did, I guess, me and Mike? No, it, it didn't really distract me too much because You're that's fan the whole. Operas. Okay. All right. Well, no, I'm just saying that that's, that's the whole double life aspect is we've, we've got the one side where he's the hitman and for the, 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 crime syndicate and he's killing everybody and he's the best at his job and i'm your executioner and there's all that kind of stuff so you got that on the one hand and then you've got he's got troubles at home he's got an ex-wife he's got the young girlfriend who you know he's gotta make sure that she's provided for she's somewhat materialistic she's got the daughter he's gotta pay for i'm sure he's the one footing the bill for manuela the nanny and I mean, that's that that's just the other half of his life. So I think we need that to 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 know why the stakes are so high. Like, why does does he does he have an interest in even trying to 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 save these people? And that, that's what makes him a somewhat a sympathetic character. He's not just a ruthless assassin. He's also got these family ties. And so I, I don't have a problem with it. It's just that's just part and parcel of these kind of movies and i don't even think that the the sex scene between him and his ex-wife is is out of place because you know if you remember that's that's basically after uh he goes to where she's in the hotel with the 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 new guy she's dating and who you know he's gonna get clipped the second you see him and so you know she, she witnesses that and then she sees him in this huge struggle with these guys pretending to be cops 
and then she's the one who actually has to kill one of the cops to save his life. I mean, it's such a traumatic event that I, yeah. it to me it was totally believable that they'd end up you know getting it on again. It, so I, I have no no issue at all with that. Well, that does call back to the history of violence comparisons that we were talking about earlier. Yes, because exactly. That, like the cheerleader. Yeah, that has. Yeah, well, the cheerleader scene isn't after the bad stuff happens to right the yeah that's true I, that's, that's just the, what it, popped the my stair, head the immediately. part on the stairs is the one yes. that jumped out to me it's, it's yeah. like their equivalent of that um yes. i also thought that the the mistress at the beginning was a call girl because she mentioned charging him extra for something well i think she's just kind of joke i think that's more she's just joking about how materialistic she is uh oh, you know okay. that's that's kind of because you remember i mean he his intent was to leave his daughter with her when he's, uh, you know, going off to do one of his jobs. So I right. think it, it's kind of Im- definitely implied that they're in a relationship uh, together. She's just a very kind of materialistic, you know, young woman. You know, not that Dolph would ever in his real life be involved in anything like that. <laughs> But just in right. uh, in terms of the film, that that that's that's definitely what I got is that they were, it was his new you know trophy girlfriend that is not a very reliable person. Right. So here's I see that. Here's, well, and here's my issue with the April character. Okay, and and this is something that you and I discussed uh, a few years ago, if I remember right, Chris, when we first saw it. So the plot of the film really kicks into into high gear. After Icarus, we haven't really talked about it, but yet Eddie's Eddie's code name, his assassin code name, is Icarus, and so the plot of the film really kicks into gear after he leaves one of the quote unquote targets alive on his assignment when he is in Hong Kong. Okay, and so real quick, the one thing I want to throw out there before I forget, I I like how the fact <laughs> what's what's also interesting about this film is how Mike, you said it earlier, the film exists in an almost yeah. John Wick esque world where assassins are all walking among us and they're all working regular everyday jobs. Yeah, they're they're Love assimilated into society. They're they're keeping the grim. They're doing the Grim Reapers job on Earth. Yeah, yeah. So doesn't make any sense. Going, <laughs> going. The 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 thing about the the April character that I think is so odd is okay. So Dolph finds out that um his his cover has basically been blown and this sets off a war where suddenly Icarus finds himself, um, and I'm going to go back and forth between this, calling him Icarus and Eddie. So just, you know, for for anyone listening. But yeah, this sets off a war where Eddie finds himself a target and he now must protect his family. And so I do have to, there's a scene that's really interesting. I have to admire a truly great moment of acting on Dolph's behalf that unfortunately has a really weird narrative payoff. Okay. So Eddie calls us home when he finds out that, um, that, okay, that he's a target and something's up. He calls us home to check on his daughter who's being watched by, by his girlfriend, April, right? So April answers, but he also hears an explosion on the line. Okay, so she gets blown up. Eddie screams, and I love this because this is great acting on Dolph's, on Dolph's behalf. So he screams, he starts pounding the dashboard, and then suddenly he, re- <laughs> suddenly he realizes that his daughter was actually with his housekeeper so his little girl's safe. And so there's this moment, narratively, where Dolph goes from just extreme panic and horror to suddenly, oh, whew, 
thankfully it's just the young gal I've been banging. Okay, I'm huh. <laughs> I'm good. And I remember well, when I brought that up to you, Chris, I, you were like, "Yeah, well, it would be a bit of a relief, wouldn't it?" Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, in his defense, if if I thought that both my girl, young girlfriend, and my daughter had been murdered, and then. Seconds later, I realized that no, my daughter is alive. I'd feel relieved. I mean, it's just—I think that—that's just human. I, I don't—I don't see you have an issue with that at all. Because what's interesting is, okay, so April dies, and what's funny about this? Excuse me, I shouldn't say funny, but she's never no, mentioned. Funny. Okay, <laughs> she's. What's funny is she's never mentioned again in this film. When her character dies, no one cares. Yeah. She's never mentioned again. And I guess it makes sense because what we did see of her, she was pretty bitchy and complaining about having to wa- watch Dolph's kid. But I kind of wonder if yeah. if that's her purpose in the film. If her purpose in the film is to is for her to simply die to kind of give Dolph's character some drive and motivation and knowing, okay, these guys who are after me mean business. And they can't kill a little girl, at least on screen. They can't kill his ex-wife. I- well, then we'll kill this uh, floozy blonde. I do agree with that. Um, you got to have some kind of red shirt to set up the revenge gears at some point. Um, she's expendable. And she she's kind of, you know, a, a non-playable character, as they call it in a video game. You know, you talk to her, and then she dies, and then you're set up. Uh, yeah. And... I just want to mention, Sean, I don't want you to forget the big problem that we discussed about this movie. Like the, the, big the problem. biggest problem. Yeah. Oh, Mike, hold on to that. Okay. Because I have some theories about that. So hang tight. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and so what follows from here are multiple action sequences that I think are worth noting and mentioning. I was just going to rattle these off real quick, and you guys can tell me which one you guys liked best, which one you guys thought was the best. The first real big action sequence, if we're, of co- if we're not counting the, the assassination scenes in, uh, in Hong Kong. So Eddie is driving home when some construction workers, and I put construction workers in quotes, corner his vehicle, and Eddie takes them yep. all out. Um, the next scene, in my opinion, the next sequence, I think, in my opinion, I think it's the best. He goes back home to rescue his daughter. He takes on multiple hitmen in his home gym, and he uses dumbbells. And in the ultimate money shot of the film, he impales a guy's face on the end of the bench press. And then the next sequence yeah. from there, it uh, is at a barn where Eddie basically brings his wife and daughter to a farmhouse, which he assumes to be a place of refuge. Only he finds out that his nope. weapons supplier, we haven't talked about this character, but his weapons supplier is working for the unknown enemy. So Eddie's been sabotaged. I guess I'll, I'll go to, oh, Chris, I'll go to you first. Out of all these action sequences, which one stands out to you the most? I'm assuming it's got to be the weight room scene, right? Yeah, that's, that's the big one. I mean, there hasn't been, as to my knowledge, a scene where a guy gets, you know, gets one of those bars right through the face and I, I will say that, you know, I love that part. I do kind of wish that they had, had taken a little more time to be even more graphic with it. Cause I think that would have been excellent. Cause I mean, we, you know, we see it, we see, we kind of know what happens. We see the head 
uh, you know, the aftermath of the head going into the bar. But I mean, if they're going to show, when I see what they did with the guy's cheek hanging off, I feel like, man, they could have really gone, gone full tilt with this dude's head into the bar. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the, the sequence that I, I enjoy the most, at least in the middle of the film. I mean, I really like the action towards the end. But in terms of the the sequences throughout the movie, it's it's by far the the when he's back at his house. With his regards gonna, to the uh, with the to the action in the film, I I just have to lay it right down. I think the the climactic battle is too awesome for words. That that's oh. like reverse scar. It's like it's like reverse Scarface, where instead of one guy taking on a bunch of guys invading his mansion. Dolph Lundgren goes into a mansion with dozens of guys, suicide mission, and takes them all out. And that's when we meet Bo Svensson, who, if we're talking in history of violence terms, is the William Hurt of the movie. Right. Well, and, okay, so that's, okay, my other third gripe about about the Bo Svensson character is the fact that he gets introduced, in my opinion, a little a little too late but we'll, we'll get to that we'll get that to that in a minute but i will say i mean i was kind of cracking a joke but dolph's poor little girl man she witnesses her dad impale a dude's face on the end of a barbell uh, of, a, of a bench press that poor little girl's gonna need therapy right like my goodness hey, she she's a hell of a lot better off than manuela the nanny i'll tell you that much oh yeah and th- there's another character who just gets killed and there's there's really no time taken to process any of these deaths, I feel, in this film. And all these people who are around Dolph just get shot and killed so callously. And it's never, you know what I mean? That there's really, and I yeah, think that, well, like, oh, see, what I don't understand, you know, in terms of, like, with Manuela, okay, so she's at the house and, you know, watching the kid. And you have the all the trouble that goes on in the house. Then they go to the car and Dolph hotwires that car, and they're going to leave, and Manuela's still there. But I, I feel like at that point, there would have been nothing wrong if Manuela had said, been a quite an evening, I, I appreciate the, what you did there back at the house, how about you drop me off? I, I really think that it would have been perfectly within her rights to do that. I, 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 I feel I like, like there was no reason for, for her to have to stick it out and then, unfortunately, meet her own demise. So uh, that's yeah. that's my opinion on Manuela the nanny. Huh. Now, if we look at if we look at the barn sequence, though, I mean, we we haven't talked about that one either. That's also a really cool action sequence. I especially yeah. like how he dispatches of the of his shady weapon supplier. So yeah, he he partners himself with um this gal. She's the one who again, this is another character in this John Wick world where um, she has a, a business that uh, she uses as a front for, you know, supplying weapons for him right. on his various jobs. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that, uh, yeah, she's sabotaged Eddie. She's, uh, you know, turned on Eddie. And so what does he do? Well, he takes them, he takes all these, all these bad guys out who are at the barn. But then this particular woman, he impales her with a pitchfork at the barn. I yes. thought, and again, I have to wonder, do you think this was Dolph's idea or do you think this was actually in the script? I'd like to think that Dolph, when he saw that they were filming at this barn, he said, what are some instruments we can use here? I'm going to use yeah. a pitchfork. It's, it's like Home Alone syndrome. What can I conjure up with my surroundings? 
Well, I like the fact that he not only, you know, does he impale her once with the pitchfork, but he actually takes it out and he drives it back into her a second time. I mean, I thought yeah, that yeah. was kind of extreme. I was like, wow, that's yeah, you don't that's... see a woman you don't see a woman impaled twice in a by a pitchfork very often in a film. Um, and that's, I, I, not that I can think of. And if I read correctly, I think that role was initially intended um, to be a male. And when she signed on for that particular role, they didn't change anything for that particular role to make it a woman. You know what I mean? Like she signed on for it and, and she plays it really well, I will say. I, but again, this is another actress who I've never seen. And, and, and oh, yeah, other. she's good. I'm sure she's got a whole long line of uh, Canadian TV movies to her name. And, but, yeah, I mm. thought she was really good in this. So Eddie finds uh, – what is it? He finds refuge with the U.S. government. And yep. it turns out – okay, so this is, this is where his past comes into play. Okay, so this is the history of violence moment, if you will. Okay, so it turns out that in Eddie's previous life, he worked as a KGB assassin – and he was supposed to kill his best friend. The character's name is Vadim, only he refused, instead turning his weapon on his superiors. And then Eddie and Vadim escape to the U.S., where they both start working as contract killers before rival organizations. And Vadim, he now becomes the head of a powerful Russian crime syndicate. And he's also the one who outed Eddie and, you know, revealed Eddie's identity and uh, he's been targeting him. So the U.S. government at this point is basically blackmailing Eddie into killing Vadim, his once best friend and now enemy. So like I said earlier, I feel like, okay, I know a lot of people love history of violence and I think the history of violence, you know, has a lot of things going for it. The revelation or the reveal of the William Hurt character in history of violence I don't know. I, I go back and forth on. It. I think I think it does work in that particular film. In this particular film, again, I feel like one of the other problems with this film is the rushed production, or excuse me, the rushed yep. nature of the production. And they didn't have time opinion, to do. They yeah. didn't really have time to have it to build momentum in the film. And yeah, exactly. You and know, in my opinion, okay, the inclusion of Vadim's character again. This is my opinion comes way too late. I mean, the guy, Yeah, it almost feels like he comes completely out of nowhere. And I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. again, you can't introduce, and again, this is just my opinion. I want to throw this out there because it worked in history of violence, but I don't think you can effectively introduce the main heavy in the final 10 minutes of the third act and expect the audience to care. And that's a betrayal. That's yeah. That, and it reminds me of a, of, popular action movie that I have a big issue with, which is Air Force One. And that I have an issue with because that movie ends 25 minutes later than it should. And this has kind of a lopsided issue where the ending, where we finally get to meet the main bad guy, it's a guy we've never seen before. He's been spoken about a little bit. He doesn't get anything juicy in terms of material but he is the bad guy and you got to root for Dolph to take him out see i i kind of disagree because you know even though i i've liked the movie up until this point i i enjoy the fact that okay now we're at the the third act this is it Dolph's in this this compound 
And here we go. Here's someone else I recognize. Here's Bo Svensson. Here he's chewing scenery. Here we have, we've now got two guys from Sweden playing Russian gangsters. And here we go. This is, uh, I, I think it takes the movie up a notch. So I, I did not have a problem with it. I, I like that he's, you know, has this kind of grand entrance and he's making these, you know, these big speeches. And I love the way that, that Svensson says, Icarus! I love that. Yeah. Uh, he, he's... I think it, it to me it's it's what kicks the movie up a notch. I I don't really downgrade it. I think if we're looking for a difference between how it's done here as opposed to History of Violence, is that in History of Violence you've got Ed Harris for a big chunk of the movie, so he's kind right. of your an, antagonist, and he's the one you think is kind of the main bad guy that's eventually going to kind of end the movie. So then you know right. when he gets clipped. It kind of segues into where where we get William Hurt. So you know this is Icarus. This is you know a Dolph Lundgren movie. We don't have Ed Harris. There's really no equivalent to Ed Harris. You know they they it's just the way it is with these movies. Maybe it's they could have somehow. Guys, it's a bunch of yeah. Faceless. So <laughs> right. So faceless or cheekless, however you want to put it. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's just the the way it is. So yeah, this movie doesn't quite have the level of of characters that we got in history of violence. But it, to me, that doesn't detract from Bo Svensson in, in this movie. I think he's a lot of fun and he's what kind of kicks the movie into another gear for me. Well, and we also, we also get Bo Svensson to literally spell out the significance and the meaning of the title or the code name Icarus. I don't know if you guys picked up on that or not, but he says, Icarus, I did. did you fly too close to the sun? Your and wings I, and I celebrated. And it's like, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> like, I, I should mention, though, that that was a celebratory moment for me because my friends and I have an ongoing joke about every time you hear the title get recited in a film, you kind of have to cheer because they they have the title for a specific reason. And this happens a lot in my personal life. And I found out that Penn and Teller used to have a movie watching group. And if that happened, they all applauded. So uh, good for them for saying the title of the movie and not The Killing Machine, which is the fake title of the film. Well, and yes, I wanted to actually yes. talk about that real quick, actually, because I had that written down. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of going back a bit. Anchor Bay. Actually, this was Anchor Bay who distributed here in the States. Yeah, the the extremely awkward and stupid title for this film, The Killing Machine. In fact, when this film yeah. was played on cable on the Stars Network, um, I remember it actually had the title, Dolph Lundgren is The Killing Machine. That was, I kid you not, that, the title that... that, that well, that's, Stars that's the actual title on the, the DVD and the Blu-ray. It's, it's actually Dolph Lundgren is The Killing Machine. Like, that's the actual title. And, that's ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculous. And that's, that's, what also, that's what also makes me think that the whole credits were not him, because it just seems like they just they just took this movie away and just did a whole lot of, a lot of shady stuff with it. And uh, that title. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That title is just atrocious. It's hideous. But, well, if hideous. you remember yep. my theory about this, if you remember this film came out, it was distributed on DVD here in the States around the same time when the Expendables came out. 
And so I think the changing of the title, because I mean, (laughs) the title Icarus has some mystery behind it. And so when you take that away and call it Dolph Lundgren is the killing machine or just the killing machine, whatever, you're taking away and eliminating any kind of mystery that this film could have had. But I think what this was or why it was retitled this was this was Anchor Bay very clearly riding on the potential and upcoming success of The Expendables, which, like I said, had also come out that same year. So I think they wanted to market it in a similar vein where they were pretty much proclaiming, hey, we have a movie with a star from that popular film that is out. So here you go. Right. No, I think that's that's 100% what it was. I mean, this came out on on uh, video. This was It was two months after The Expendables had opened. Um, right. and I, I remember, I remember buying it at Best Buy the same day as the Apocalypse Now, uh, a redo Blu-ray. I, uh, why those things oh. stick out of my head? I have no idea. I wish I had oh, more useful information. No, Chris, but... Chris, I got you beat actually. This was given to me as a birthday present from my in-laws. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah. Alongside, um, alongside season four of Sunny in Philadelphia. So I am with you. I remember (laughs) you hit the in-law lottery, my friend. Yeah. I I don't know why these things stay with me uh, the way they do, but I I definitely remember getting, getting unfortunately titled Dolph Lundgren is the killing machine and uh, uh, apocalypse. Now the, the redo Blu-ray at Best Buy at the same time. And yeah, I just, I don't understand why it was released. I mean, I guess I understand why it was released with that title. They're, like you said, they're just trying to capitalize on the expendables and they're just trying to hammer people over the head with the fact that this is a Dolph Lundgren movie, but it just is so cheesy and so stupid. Well, yeah. and going along with, uh, th- that's an excellent segue actually there, Chris, because <laughs> going along with, uh, cheesy aspects of this film, Mike, you and I were talking about this the other day. We already yeah. talked about the final action sequence in the film in the mansion um, because uh, I kind of touched upon it earlier. But, yeah, Eddie's getting ready to light his last cigar. Only wait for it, wait for it. His lighter is also an explosive remote. And so he just lays waste to everybody here in this mansion, including Bo Svensson's character. And then it goes, OK, so this is I talked about how I had a few frustrations with the film. This is my number one frustration and i have a few theories on it but again i don't think any of them really make sense so it appears so we pick up you know a few weeks after all of the violence and everything eddie appears to his to have left his assassin kgb life behind and he's now relocated with his wife and his daughter to iowa but apparently his past isn't over yet because and this is how the film ends a mysterious black man sits outside his house across the street. Eddie and his wife stare at it suspiciously. And the film just cuts to black and credits roll. I mean, we get a completely ambiguous, nonsensical twist of the ending that, like I said, is my biggest frustration of the film. And it begs the question, and I was going to get your theories on this, but it begs so many questions. Okay, is this black van? The U.S. government keeping an eye on Eddie to carry out future contracts for them. Are these more KGB members from Eddie's past? Is this setting up a sequel that Dolph was hoping to get rolling? 
does Dolph and the production even care that their film is ending on an unanswered and ambiguous note like this? I mean, it almost feels like they're going for a Sopranos-type ending here, if you remember how Sopranos ended their entire sure, series. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I definitely see that. I don't, I, I don't get it here. Um, so, Chris, I'll go to you first. The ending of the film, help me make sense of it. What do you, what do you think is going on here? Well, let me just say that before we get to the actual ending, because uh, I, I, you know, we're we're on that right now. But I do want to say I want to back it up in the movie a couple minutes, and I, I want to say that I love that they bring back a uh, cheek ripped apart guy at the very end, and you know makes it look like he's he's about to kill Dolph, but then you know we see that the good deed that Dolph did it pays off. And and I also think it's hilarious that when they show the guy with the cheek, he's got the huge scar that they also show the flashback to when he was hanging upside down in case people watching, you know, couldn't quite piece together that this guy with this huge scar on his cheek is the same man from the beginning of the movie. So I really like that touch. I just want to say that first. But in terms of when when they end uh, when they're living in the the little comp area there in Iowa, I don't have a problem with that ending. I, I think there's nothing wrong with an ambiguous ending. I think you know it's up to us to determine is that is that a, a van of government operatives? Is it a van of Russian gangsters? Is it just a van of a guy that's going to be delivering flowers to the house next door? Who knows? I, I, I like that. It adds a little bit of mystery. And, you know, I, I appreciate that they, they went for something a, a little more than just him hugging the wife and daughter, the end credits roll. So I, I don't I don't think that's a, a bad ending at all. All right, um, Mike. I certainly Mike, what do you think? I certainly respect your opinion on this, Chris, because it gives me another perspective of this ending to look at it. But my gut reaction and my personal take is that it's completely out of place and a little more downbeat than the direction of the film is going. It's a little arbitrary. I don't know if it's, like you said, Sean, if it was a budget thing, if it was setting up for a sequel. I don't think it was setting up for a sequel because it's a pretty one-and-done plot of a guy getting out. What is the black van? I assume that it was part of the... uh, hitman's r us thing that he belonged to i thought they were just spying on him and there was nothing really more to it than that but i assume what happened i don't know why he went from vancouver to sioux city iowa which by the way was canada we are i'm pretty certain and looks exactly like the suburbs from the last season of twin peaks i thought kyle mclaughlin was going to pop out in the green jacket at some point but at the same time, like they never explain, you know, why did he go to Sioux City, Iowa? The implication, at least for me, is witness protection. But why would the witness protection program be helping out somebody who's a Canadian citizen? That doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no underlying theme that these people are connected to the government, to geopolitics. There's nothing really like that. They're just their own agent and... I'm not sure why he got dumped there. It doesn't make any sense. And, like, you know, the film that we saw, if it had just ended on Dolph reuniting with his family, fine, perfect. 
it doesn't affect my rating of the movie, but at the same time, I would have liked something with closure. And see, see, another another reason that I like it is that it puts you into the head of Dolph's character, is that you can be in the most suburban, you know, area in the world that you would think is going to be peaceful and serene, and you've got your child, you've got your wife, but anytime there's a strange vehicle outside, that those thoughts are going to come up. Anytime something is a little out of place, those thoughts are going to come up. It's going to follow him forever. And, and it's there, a flashback. There, 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 but there is no resolution. Yeah, mm. that's actually how I interpreted it. I mean, I still am not a huge fan of the ending, but that's actually how I interpreted it. I don't think it's members of the KGB. I don't think it's members of the U.S. government. In my opinion, I think it's just a black van. That's all it is. It's just a black van. It could have been anybody driving it. It could, it, you know, it, it could have been, you know, the uh, the neighbor across the street hiring a carpet cleaning company that just so happens to have a black van. I think it's 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 kind of like going. If we're going to bring this back to Sopranos, I feel like with the Sopranos, I think the reason why David Chase ended that series where it cut to black was because, in in my opinion, I think it was trying to show that. No matter where Tony Soprano goes, and no matter how far removed he may think he is from the mob, he is always going to be looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life. Yeah, and exactly. That that was the whole beauty of that life. end sequence was every single character that came into that restaurant, we as the viewer were like, oh, is that guy going to kill Tony? Oh, that guy looks a little like Robert Patrick. Maybe he's going to kill him. Is that guy going to kill him? And And that's basically yeah. Tony's life. He can just go and have a, a mundane dinner at this diner, but he's always got to be looking out for every single person that walks into a restaurant. He's got to size them up. That's just part of his life. And and to me, that's the same as Dolph in this movie. It doesn't matter how normal his life may seem. Anybody, anybody new that enters it, any vehicle that's out of place, he's got to size them up. That's just the way his life is. Well, let's... uh. Okay, so we've we've really kind of danced around what we think of this film, and it seems like we we all really liked it, you know, with a few minor gripes here and there. So let, let's get our recommendation out of the way. So I'll go with uh, Mike. I'm going to go to you first. Okay, in your opinion, Mike, does this film get a recommend, not just as a Dolph Lundgren vehicle, but as an action film in general? What do you think, sir? Would you recommend it? I would absolutely recommend it to friends of mine. If they're willing to go down the Dolph Lundgren rabbit hole with me, that's going to be one of the ones that I would say it may not be the first one. I would want to focus on some of the early stuff first, but if we're going to talk about 21st century Dolph and the fact that he's a little more comfortable now that he's popping up and stuff like Aquaman, um, absolutely for sure. And by the way, I do one of the reasons I actually like Aquaman is because Dolph's in it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a lot of reasons why a lot of like it. Yeah. He's Chris, not a seahorse. <laughs> Chris, I'll go to you. What do you think? Does this film get a recommend not just as a Dolph Lundgren vehicle, but as an action movie in general? What do you think, sir? Yes, I, I think, you know, anybody that's into these type of movies, they should enjoy this one. The action kind of keeps coming at you. It doesn't slow down. It doesn't 
spend, you know, 20 minutes with a lot of exposition in between action scenes. It goes from action scene to action scene. Dolph's playing a pretty cool character. You've got, a, in my opinion, a fun villain, even though he doesn't show up till the very end. It's still a fun villain with Bo Svensson. You know, this, like, like Mike was saying, this isn't top tier Dolph. This is definitely not in his top 10. May not even be, if I was thinking, probably not even in his top 15. But I, I this is a solid, fun action film. Uh, it's a good role for Dolph. Good amount of action in it. And yes, I, I would definitely recommend this one. It's, it's a, it's a solid outing for him. A solid, a solid ground rule double. You know, I would say out of the five films that um, Dolph has directed, and he actually has another that is currently on the docket that is in post-production, so we should be seeing it here um, awesome. within 2021, uh, Castle Falls. Really looking forward to that, because not only is Dolph starring, but um, he's he's starring alongside Scott Atkins, actually, and he is returning oh, yeah. to the director's chair. So, yeah, this is his... Uh, this is his big return to the director's chair. But if we look at the five films that he had directed, Chris, I don't know what your ranking would be, but I would go The Russian Specialist or The Mechanic, however you want to refer to it. But I'd put that one at the top, followed by The Defender, followed by Command Performance, then this one, Icarus, and then I'm going to end it with Missionary Man. Is your list about the same? It's one hundred percent. Yes, I I would go yeah. and 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 I don't think n- none of them are are outright bad. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Missionary Man was the weakest just because it it just there just isn't a lot going on in the movie. It's not bad. He it, it's it's got the heart is in the right place. You know, he's trying to do his version of Pale Rider, and so I can appreciate it. So it's not outright. It's not bad, but it's definitely fifth among the ones he's directed. And yeah, I mean, to me, the the easiest choice for the best one is the mechanic i just think that's that's a, a tremendously yeah. fun movie um i mean a great you, ben cross performance in there and so yeah that that's my favorite and icarus would probably be fourth on the list and it's great and i should mention also the fact that i have seen the mechanic and icarus and you put and sean you put the defender and command performance in between them i guess i have to watch those now yes most oh, definitely yeah, yeah. I would say crazy good. Yeah. The defender is amazing. That's actually his directorial debut. Um, I think the role where he's clearly having the most fun is command performance though. I mean, command performance is playing a rock star. I mean, and who wouldn't love to play a rock star? I mean, you can tell that he is just, he is relishing that and having so much fun with that. And on that particular episode, my buddy Jeremiah, who is a rocker himself actually joined me to discuss that one. And, and we had a ton of fun, but you know, with regard to my recommend, I think, uh, look, th- this film and this story is is pretty cookie cutter here. And that's that's perfect for an independent action film. There's not a whole lot of story here that's really needed. In the end, it's basically real estate broker by day who moonlights as a contract killer. Yet with this simplistic story, Dolphin Company are able to really put forth a ton of effort in terms of the action sequences. So I would say on that front, it certainly delivers. It's very evident how much Dolph cares and how invested he is, not just in terms of his acting, but also his directorial flourishes. There is some wild gore here, so I think fans of both action films and Dolph Lundgren are going to be more than pleased with seeing Dolph do what he does best, which is kicking ass and never asking questions. I will say while the digital HD filmmaking look of the film is not very polished to look at, and the story does feel rushed and somewhat sloppily edited together, 
This is still a ton of fun to kick back and watch. I would say it's essential viewing, not only for Dolph completists, but for anyone who is looking to simply watch a uh, good action movie with a beer. Yeah. Sums it up. Sums it up. So, yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, for joining me. Um, you know, this Oh, my God. Is, uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, Mike, uh, I'd, I'd love to have you back on. So thank you very much. Before, I would love to come back. Before I let you guys go. Yeah. I'd like you guys to uh, give a plug or mention anything that you're working on. Uh, Mike, I'll go to you first. I know you have an amazing Letterboxd account that I will be um, yes. including a link to in the show notes. But is there anything else that you're working on? Anything else you want to give a shout out to? Oh, you know, um, I'm working on, uh, um, well, in the new year, I'll be planning to work on a few creative, private, independent endeavors involving my screenwriting career that I think I have, but don't. Uh, but please follow my letterboxed. Um, I'm Mike Drew Flynn. You'll see the link in there. Um, you can also listen to me on The Simpsons Countdown, which is available on iTunes and other streaming platforms, where the host, Eric Santuan, breaks down The Simpsons episode by episode and its cultural significance. In addition, uh, Eric Santuan and I also co-host a podcast called Confirmed Asperger's, which is a free-flowing discussion of my extensive knowledge of pop culture. Uh, the first episode was released two months ago, and it's on horror films. And we will be, we were supposed to do a Christmas episode, but um, I believe the next episode we're going to do is going to be an Inauguration Day-themed look at presidents and film awesome chris how about you uh anything that you're working on or anything else you want to give a plug or shout out to well you know like uh like mike i've also been on the the simpsons countdown podcast so i'll, I'll throw a shout out to that uh always in, i've enjoyed uh being on that show that's a lot of fun it you know it's it goes way way beyond just just the simpsons i mean that's certainly where, where it starts out but it it goes to a lot of interesting places, so I've, I've definitely enjoyed that. And aside from that, I'm just excited because uh, uh, in my fantasy football league, I'm, I'm going to the Super Bowl. That'll be this weekend. So wish me luck there. I haven't, <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't, I haven't won one of these things yet. So I have like the most awesome team that's ever been assembled. There, I don't see any way I can lose this weekend. But if it happens, I'm going to be totally dejected. So that that's what I'll also just everyone everyone will have good thoughts for my fantasy football team. Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, good luck to you. Uh, Mike, again, thank you so very much. Yes. This was a uh, Oh, was my a God. It was fun. a pleasure doing this. I had so much fun. <laughs> well, very cool. Very cool. Uh, well, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break yes. This Podcast. Uh -huh.